As we turn this morning to the book of John, we're going to be looking at this first section, the prologue of John, uh, verses 1 through 18, but we're going to look at 1 through 4 and then 14 through 18 together. Um, We all know that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Leading up to that point, you think about it, I mean, just think about it. You know, the decorations and stuff start showing up in the stores in October, okay? Maybe even September in some of the places. Uh, Christmas music begins. Uh, there's parties. There's gatherings. Um, uh, there's buying of gifts. There is receiving of gifts. Uh, all of these things, uh, people uh, singing Christmas carols and and uh, trying to dress cold-looking, even if it's warm outside, you know. I just read this morning, it's going to be 70 degrees on Christmas Day. It's just very interesting to me. Uh, welcome to Texas. Um, you know, it's all these things that go on, and, and, and in the center of all that, you can, you can lose what Christmas is about. You might remember that old Christmas carol with Charlie Brown. And he's, he's there and he's wondering, you know, can someone please explain to me what Christmas is all about? And Linus, his little friend, speaks up and says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were, in that same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swelling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That really and truly is what Christmas is all about. But still, can someone tell me more about that baby? Who is that baby? Where did that baby come from? What is that baby all about? John, the gospel writer, speaks up. And he says, let me tell you more about this Christmas child. Let me go deeper yet still, so that you'll understand the reality and the depth of what happened. Would you open your Bibles to John 1? 1 through 4, and then we'll pick up at 14 through 18. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for this reality, this truth that is so deep. And I pray that you would help us as we unfold it this morning understand who this Jesus truly is, who this child truly was. Help us to see it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Christmas is indeed the, the observance of Jesus' very much humble birth to a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem, a Savior for all men. The story is remarkable. It is, it is miraculous. You may remember Mary, a young woman, a young Israelite girl. She was betrothed to this young man named Joseph. And an angel appeared to her just out of nowhere. Can you imagine? Dick Sorrell and I were talking about this yesterday. What would it have been like? What did Mary think? What did she have in her mind? And I imagine this young teenager just going before this angel, okay, fine. As the angel tells her, you're going to give birth to a son, even though you have known no man. So before they get married, Joseph discovers this. He discovers she was pregnant. He doesn't know what to think. You can imagine uh, the, the thought process going through his mind. But being a noble man, the way he was, he had determined to divorce her quietly. And so Mary would not be at all disgraced. However, another miraculous thing happened. An angel appeared to Joseph and confirmed Mary's story that Mary was to have a child. And so Joseph took Mary to be his wife. Well, about that time, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire. And everyone had to travel to his own ancestral hometown to be accounted for. So Joseph and his very pregnant wife Mary went from Galilee to Nazareth up to Bethlehem in Judea for the census. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. But what if I were to tell you, what if I were to suggest to you that there's more to this, that there's much more behind the scenes? The gospel witnesses of Matthew and Luke relay this birth story to us. But John, the third gospel writer, to mention the incarnation does something very different. John goes behind the scenes to lay a deeper foundation for us to explain who this baby is and where he came from and what in the world his coming means to us. And so let us consider first of all, Who is this baby born in Bethlehem? And where in the world did this child come from? Now the main purpose of John gravely sick and had to be away for the semester, so they brought in a New Testament professor who was supposed to teach through the entire book of John. Through that next uh, 12 to 16 weeks, he stayed in John 1, 1 through 18 the whole time. 
That's how much is here. So let's scratch the surface. First, he wants us to know that Jesus the Word is eternal. Jesus the Word is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. There never was a time when Christ did not exist. John communicates the word was in a Greek imperfect tense, which literally means the word was continuing. In fact, the entire first verse communicates this sense for the reader. In the beginning was continuing word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. It's just this idea that He has always existed. One theologian put it this way, at the dawn of creation, the Word already existed. But in the middle of that creation's history, the Word that had always been became that which it had never been before. Jesus is eternal. Jesus, the Word, is eternal. Secondly, As we move along in the text, Jesus, the Word, was in eternal relationship with God. John notes that the Word was with God. This preposition here, with, is a marker of association, often with the implication of interrelationships. It therefore communicates the idea of nearness along with the sense of movement toward one another. Think of it this way. This is how we're to think of this. This is what John's communicating here. He is saying that that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were continually with one another face to face. That is to say, there has always existed a deep equality and intimacy in the relationship of the triune God. Jesus, the Word, was in eternal relationship with the Godhead. So these two concepts then that John is communicating to us, and again, we could go into some really deep dives here and spend week upon week in these thoughts. But these two concepts that John is communicating come together to a focal point that he's linking together here concerning this child. And so here's what John is saying for us. Jesus, the Word, is God. The last phrase of verse 1 makes this crystal clear. And the Word was God. This means that the Word Jesus was God in every essence and character aspect of the Godhead. Even though He is a separate person from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, He was and is is in every way God. This is who He was from all eternity. He has always existed in eternity in perfect relationship with the triune God. John makes his point with uttermost clarity by adding in verses 3 through 4, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So do you see what he's doing here? He is drawing us again back to the beginning of creation of the cosmos and everything that was created. Even darkness and light and life as spoken of here in the text relate back to the creation narrative of Genesis. And they speak loudly at the dawn of creation. 
that the Word already existed and was in fact God. Paul confirms this in Colossians 1, 16-17. And, and there's passage after passage after passage, but this is just one. He says, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. He is God. So just think about it. Meditate on it a little bit. He made the angels. He made the angels that heralded His coming. He created the shepherds who went to investigate the birth. He created the gifts from which the wise men, uh, the, the, the wise men gave to Him. And even before Mary herself ever drew her first breath in life, Jesus already was. As a school teacher, uh, there was a school teacher in England and she told the story um, at Christmas time, that she sur actually supervised a, a construction of a manger scene in the corner of her classroom. All the children participated. They were happy about it. They were excited about the project. They enjoyed uh, casting characters for the drama, depicting the nativity scene. But the teacher noticed one little boy in particular, and he was enamored by it all, and, and he would forevermore just get up in class and walk over, just look at the scene. And, and so at last she asked him, is there anything bothering you? What, what's going on? And, and he said, no. And she said, well, are there questions that you would like to ask? And he said, well, yeah, I have one. Where does God fit in all this? This is what John is saying. This is what he is amazingly proclaiming. Don't miss it. The baby is God. John's message here and throughout the book of John consistently drives toward the conclusion that Jesus, the incarnate Word, is just as much God as the Father. Understand that. Know that. Because that's what John wants us to see that we may believe. So now that we've heard it, now that we've kind of rambled around in the passage, uh, and we've, we've looked at who he, who he was and where he came from, let's consider what this means to us. What does it mean to us today? If you look back with me in verses 14 and 16, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Going back to Genesis again, not long after the beginning when everything was perfect and Adam walked in the garden with God in the cool of the evening, he and Eve took the forbidden fruit and they ate of it. What that tells us is that they rebelled against God. The one know that He had, they said, we're going to do this. We're going to take this fruit into our hands and we're going to eat it. So they rebelled against God. As a result of that rebellion, you may remember that they were removed from the garden, separated in relationship from God. That's what that picture sort of signifies for us. They're removed from the garden, 
There's a separation in relationship between God and man. But God is an ever-loving God, an ever-loving Father. And so He made a covenant promise. I will bring one who will crush the head of the serpent. If you read along in your Bible, you'll see and you'll read that this is exactly what God is doing all throughout the rest of the Bible. He is bringing about His redemption process. God chose Adam, not because of any good in Abraham. God chose Abraham, not because of any good in Abraham, but because He... He desired to choose him and he loved him. So he chose him to have a special relationship with him that not only was with him, but his descendants after him. And he made a covenant with him, promising a people, a land, a great nation, and this incredible blessing that comes from, remember the garden, that you will, there will be one who will come from your line, your family, who will bring a blessing to the whole earth. And if you read the Scriptures, God continues to working, working out that covenant promise uh, in the descendants of Israel in Abraham, through Abraham's sons, uh, through Moses, and through David. And even all the while, there's all this rebellion, even in God's people that stirs up and, and God deals with them and He calls them to love Him and He calls them to repent. And then He, he loves them again and again and again and again. We see He is working out his covenant promise, His covenant faithfulness. Until, as John puts it in verse 14 here, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see it in the Scriptures as you think about your knowledge of the Scriptures? Step by step by step through all those years, God kept getting closer and closer. He meets with Abraham and makes a great promise and makes a covenant with him. He, he works through Moses and continues his covenant through Moses and he rescues the people out of Egypt and their slavery. Then he gives them the law. And he gets even closer yet, his moving into a tent called the tabernacle. And he's tabernacling with his people. So as they're camped out there and they're moving out of Egypt, God is with them. Do you remember how he's viewed there? Pillar of fire and a cloud. And so you can imagine the, the, the families all camped there and the father comes out and he sees this, this pillar of fire moving in the evening and he says, son, pack up the hibachi. We've got to go. God's leading us forward. What John says here is beyond what mankind could ever hope or imagine. Note the contrast between verses 1 and 14. Verse 1 says the word was referring, referring to the, the word's continuing condition or state, while vo verse 14 states that the word did what? Became flesh. This involved the change in state. This is the basic statement of incarnation. Christ entered into a new dimension of existence through the gateway of human birth and took up His residence among men. So what we have here is this. Think about it. God with skin on. 
The verb translated dwelt here means to pitch a tent, to tabernacle temporarily. There's the tie back into the Old Testament again. When He came to dwell with us, He tabernacles with us. He left His usual place and accepted the conditions of human life and environment with all the associated temporal limitations of all of human experience. Perhaps you remember that song in the mid-90s. It actually used to drive me crazy. What if God were one of us? Every time that song was played on the radio, I'm like, He was! What if God had a name? What would it be? Jesus. What if God had a face? What would it look like? It would look like Jesus's. What if God was one of us? He was. Don't you get it? And that's the answer to this song. The answer that John gives us is that He became flesh. He became one of us. He literally pitched His tent in the midst of humanity. And the witness here is is that men and women saw His glory and characterized it as full of grace and truth. So understand as Francis Schaeffer wrote about the God who is there. The God who is there took on flesh and nursed in Mary's arms. Little baby Jesus was burped. His little diapers were changed. And I'm certain he cried, even though in silent night we say no crying he made. I know the point is saying he's not a sinner, he wasn't a sinner, but just crying does not make you a sinner. So I always kind of cringe at that. Okay, I get it. But he cried. He was a baby. He was a human. He grew. And you know what he did? He obeyed his heavenly father. And even his earthly parents, young people, he obeyed them. You know, <laughs> it always reminds me, he's there at the temple and he's listening to the rulers and everything and the teachers and uh, they've been off traveling because they don't know he's missing, you know, and then, and then they find out a couple days later, Jesus is not with us. They have to go back. They find him in the temple. Now, for the rest of you, you'd be found in front of the TV doing this, you know, or on your phones doing this, but not Jesus. And so when his parents say, put that away and come with me, He says, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, yes, sir. He obeyed his parents. And he loved them. And and he worked. And he became a man. He grew up into a man. And as the God-man, he walked to the dusty streets of Israel. And he taught. And he preached. And he got tired. And he got hungry. And at times, you see, he might get a little irritated. But he still didn't sin. Just remember that. He got thirsty. I'm, I'm sure he laughed. You know, in Scripture, it never records that he laughed, but I'm sure he did. Can you imagine sitting around with a bunch of disciples, 12 men, telling jokes and all that stuff at night by the campfire? It's probably the reason why it's not in Scripture. And you know what? He wept. More than that, he came to die. He came to die for you, for me. For us to give his life for a ransom for many. Now, friends, hear this. The, 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 the voices of countless continually cry out in our culture, and they, they give messages that promise to help alleviate the struggle of life. 
to give answers to questions that trouble us. They promise to bring us hope and change. They're political voices, they're economic voices, they're religious voices. John's voice, the Bible's voice, God's voice, is not a message that merely offers hope, but it voices the message that is the only hope. This is not an ideal. It's a person. Understand that. Jesus is not some force. Jesus is not some religious guru. Jesus is God. And He died for us as a person. So even with these words of writ, they all point us to Jesus the person. Our hope is in Him. As John proclaims that he is full of grace and truth, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, it is very possible and highly likely that he has in his mind as he communicates this, some thoughts in looking ahead through the rest of the book of John. I think this is what he's communicating. When you receive grace upon grace upon grace, this is what it is. If you're hungry, Jesus is the bread of life. If you're in darkness and when you're wandering around and you wonder what's going on, Jesus is the light. If you're feeling unprotected and you need shelter, He is the door. If you feel like death is scary and you're worried about it and you're wondering about it, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you feel like you need to be cared for, and you need someone to look over you, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. If you're searching for truth, and you're wondering where you might find truth, and you're digging through the the tomes and volumes of, of philosophy, trying to find the answers, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. If you feel alone and abandoned and left out, Jesus is the true vine. He'll pull you into you. And He'll help you be connected to Him and bear fruit. And so what John is basically saying to us here is Jesus is God. He is the hope. He will fulfill all your needs. Only He can do that. No one else can. So will you believe in Him? Will you believe in Him? It's interesting because John ends a prelude with this glorious statement. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Do you understand what wondrous gift this is to you? A little boy stands in the airport beside his mother and his grandparents, and, and, and there out of the, uh, the airport area, the security area, comes a man, a soldier, And he walks up and his wife sees him and she runs into his arms and she hugs him and they kiss and they hug and they embrace. And she turns around and looks at the little boy standing there and she says, this is your father. The little boy walks up to him tentatively and he hugs him. And the dad picks him up and he smiles at him and he begins to recognize him. And he looks at his face and he touches his face and he he does the contour and the shape and he looks at it 
in a way that he had never looked at it before, which was only through a screen. And he looks at the man and he says, Daddy. Daddy. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has made the Father known. Will you receive Him? For this is what Christmas is all about. Let us pray.